This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Alan Stern and David Greenspoon to Politics and Prose to talk about their new book, Chasing New Horizons, inside the epic first mission to Pluto. On January 19, 2006, NASA launched the New Horizons spacecraft. By July 2016, it had covered 4.67 billion miles and transmitted a stream of photos as it flew by Pluto, making headlines in all seven continents. Alan Stern is the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission and the chief scientist at Moon Express. David Greenspoon is the, is the senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute and adjunct professor of astrophysical and planetary science at the University of Colorado and author of Earth in Human Hands. They give a fascinating insider's account into the mission and suggest what to expect when New Horizons craft passes through the Kuiper Belt in January 2019. Please give a warm welcome to Alan Stern and Dr- David Greenspoon. All right. Thanks a lot uh, for that generous introduction. And thank you all so much for uh, coming out this evening. Um, this is exciting for us. This is um, launch day, uh, to, to use a term from uh, space flight that is also uh, used in the publishing world. Um, Spaceflight had it first, I think. Um, and uh, so this is uh, the first of uh, many events we're going to be doing over the next few weeks all around the country. Um, so uh, thanks for uh, helping us launch, and, and, and thanks for being our guinea pigs here for our, trying out our, our spiel. Um, I am um, so excited to be able to share this story of the New Horizons mission with you and, and, and with, with the public. Um, for several reasons, it's uh, and, and I'm so excited to be working with with Alan Stern, who um, will talk to you in a couple of minutes um, on this, because uh, nobody else uh, could have um, shared the kind of insight into this experience that 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 Alan did, and it was it was quite an experience working together on this. We're both sort of children of the space age, who were inspired by uh, the Apollo moon landings when we were little kids, and. Uh, were just enthralled with space and grew up to be space scientists. And uh, we both love telling stories about uh, exploration. And um, to me, the New Horizons mission, uh, the story of how we ultimately got to explore Pluto is really one of the greatest stories of exploration of our time. And I think a story that most people don't know. People know that the, the spacecraft went to Pluto uh, it got there a couple years ago, and sort of the ending of the story is no secret. In fact, there's a picture of Pluto on the cover of the book, so you know how it ends. But there's an incredible backstory. There's a really convoluted and at times harrowing um, and, and a lot of drama and a lot of false starts and a lot of ways that this mission couldn't, perhaps shouldn't have happened. Um, and it's a story of some young dreamers uh, Alan and uh, a number of other people who I've had the privilege of knowing for, uh, you know, all along. I met Alan right around the time when this story was starting in 1989. And, and, and these young dreamers who decided they wanted to do something and were told by the powers, of the powers that be, no, that'll never happen. And they didn't take no for an answer. And, and they kept going and they were stymied so many times. Uh, and there was a lot of politics and a lot of technical problems um, and, and some sort of amusing um, you know, uh, uh, tangents that they went on that didn't work. There's 
the Russia gambit. You'll hear about that. Um, you read about that in the book. Uh, and there, there were a lot of sort of dead ends, but they they. Uh, <laughs> it was a more innocent time. <laughs> yeah, this was the '80s. Um, the, the, it, but but you know they persevered and 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 they 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 succeeded. And and to me, it's the story is emblematic of modern space exploration because sort of everything that can happen did happen, and yet a lot of people don't know how it happens. And and I think what we are able to do in this book is reveal to you a real insider's perspective on how uh, something like this goes from just an idea people have to ultimately this uh, piano-sized, um, heavily instrumented spacecraft screaming at 30,000 miles per hour past the farthest planet ever explored. You know, how, how that happens is, is the story we tell. So uh, that, that to me was an exciting opportunity. And there's also kind of a, a, an intergenerational aspect to this story. We go back and tell the story of Clyde Tombaugh, the discoverer of Pluto. And it wasn't that long ago. Clyde discovered Pluto in 1930, so there are people still alive who were around then. And his story is, is amazing. It's, it's a real classic American sort of um, hard luck, rags to riches. Well, he, never, he didn't get rich, but he, did, he had something happen to him that was so much better than that. He discovered a planet. Um, but, you know, Clyde grew up poor, uh, on the farm, a Depression era, Kansas farm boy, and he was in love with the sky, and he made his own telescopes and made sketches of Mars and sent them off to observatories and never thought he'd be able to be an astronomer because he was poor. He would never imagine he'd be able to go to college or leave the farm. One day, one of those uh, sketches he sent off, he gets a letter back from Lowell Observatory asking him if he'd like a job as, a, as an assistant. And... So Clyde left the farm and went to Arizona to the Lowell Observatory, and uh, a little over a year later, after incredible painstaking nights at the telescope on this quest that nobody thought would succeed, he discovered Pluto, this little dot on a plate that was moving in, in the right way. That was 1930. At the launch of New Horizons, um, Clyde's widow was there, and at the encounter with Pluto, Clyde's children were there. and there's also this intergenerational aspect of the exploration because we were sort of trained and brought up in a sense by the first generation of planetary explorers who did these great missions um, culminating in, in Voyager, which was the last great mission that went to new planets and ending in 1989, going to Neptune. And after that, what was going to happen next? And that was when these guys got the idea, hey, let's keep going. Let's go to Pluto. Uh, they were the kids then. And now... 26 years later, they've succeeded, and they're training another generation of scientists who I'm sure are going to go on and do do wonderful things. So there, there's that sort of generational aspect of the story that we try to bring to life that I, that I love. Finally, I just want to say that um, a, as a space scientist and a writer, it was an unbelievable privilege for me to work on this project so closely, really with a lot of people from from the team, including, I think, some who are, are coming here tonight. Um, but in particular, with, with the leader of the New Horizons team, um, Alan Stern, who um, just has amazing amount of knowledge and stories and experience in his head. And I've just tremendously enjoyed drawing that out from him and creating this book together. So with that, I want to introduce Alan, who will maybe tell you a little bit more about the New Horizons mission. Okay, great. Thank you, David. Is this is this live? Can you hear me? Okay, great. Great. Well, first of all, I want to say that... Um, uh, about the time that we were completing the exploration of Pluto, uh, I had lots of requests to write a book, and I thought, that's never going to happen. <laughs> this is, I have a day job. It's really busy. 
I'm behind. <laughs> and uh, one thing led to another, and eventually to uh, someone who had the idea, why don't you find a co-author? In fact, I'll help you. And that was an agent in New York, and she produced a list of five names. I knew all five names, uh, but let's just say that um, David's name was on it, and he was a personal friend, and somebody I knew is not only a fantastically talented planetary scientist and astrobiologist, but I think uh, of all the writers in our field, he is the very best writer. And, and he was the number one on my runway to team with, and fortunately he said yes. And, and we did this thing nights and weekends for two years, uh, and we're still friends. It's amazing. <laughs> That's a really extraordinary part of the story right there. <laughs> it is. There was never a crossword between us. And I have written books before on my own, mostly more academic audiences, and, uh, not really for, um, for the public. But I can tell you, it's a much tougher bar when you have to write something together because with every draft, you have to agree to everything back and forth. So there's many more iterations and a lot more track changes and so forth. And anyway, it really worked out, and I'm really happy because David wove this amazing story, which is five or six stories in one. You know, there's a science story in there, and it's all through it from uh, the beginning with the discovery of Pluto in the early 20th century to all of our knowledge about this crazy third zone of the solar system, the Kuiper Belt. But there's also this political story of how you go about raising a billion dollars when you have no idea and you're 30 years old, you know, because I've got a good idea for what we ought to do next, except everybody else does too. And, and then uh, there's a story of exploration that's woven through the book. There's a story of the inside of how you build and fly spacecraft and prepare for this one shot, it's going to work or it's not, encounter that's behind the scenes, how things work. Uh, and then there's the story of the uh, public attachment to Pluto ever since the 30s and culminating in something NASA had never seen. When we flew past the planet in the summer of 2015, NASA's servers, they had to put them in the cloud. There were so many hits. Two billion visitors to the website in 48 hours. Now, no, half of them, those hits were not my mother. <laughs> they were people from everywhere. We were on the cover of almost 500 newspapers the same morning above the fold. I used to say, on every continent on the Earth except Antarctica, until I got an email from the guy that's the editor of the one newspaper in McMurdo <laughs> with a PDF of the cover that he had done. So I don't say that anymore. Anyway, so David has woven this story together, which is really five or six stories. And they're just beautifully merged. So you're seamlessly moving from a chapter or a section about the science to the politics, to reversals, to successes, back to defeats, to how you do the next step in the technical side of it. Um, and uh, it's just really a great read. Uh, I have to say, uh, every time I have read it, um, it gets better. Um, personally, I like the second half of the book better, but don't start in the middle <laughs> um, around launch. Uh, but that's more of my own nerdy tendencies. Um, I also want to say a few members, you know, space flight's a team sport. Uh, and I may have been the principal instigator and the leader of the project, but 2,500 men and women worked to build New Horizons in this country, the rocket and the nuclear power supply for it. Um, and uh, as I say, it's a team sport. It, it's, uh, it, it takes all kinds of talent. And I see two members of the science team 
Um, back there is Don Jennings from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and Professor Mike Summers from George Mason, uh, who are both part of the New Horizons science team. Are there other people from New Horizons that I'm not spotting in the audience? I can't see. Somebody raised their hand. Yep. There we go. Part of the engineering team at the Applied Physics Lab. So, um, uh, you know, this is also a local story for you all because Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, the underdogs in planetary exploration who we teamed with and who turned out to be just masterful at this are just up the road in Columbia. Uh, and Goddard Space Flight Center is involved and NASA headquarters downtown is involved. And of course, George Mason University uh, through Mike. And uh, uh, what else should we say? Uh, well, we'll read you a couple passages. I, I, I want, I want to. I just want to say, I thought I knew the story of New Horizons because I've been following this, uh, you know, since the beginning. Because I, I knew these guys really well. A lot of them are my close friends, and I, and I, always thought this would make a great book someday. Because I can't believe what these guys are putting up with. It was canceled by two successive presidential administrations. Um, but we outran both of them. <laughs> That's right. Outlasted them. And, and uh, there's some heroes. Uh, Senator Mikulski, Barbara Mikulski from uh, up here, many of you know, uh, she came and uh, saved the day uh, several times. She's in the book as like as sort of a savior of the mission back when, when it seemed like it was dead a few times. And um, I um, thought I knew the story well, but it turns out in talking to Alan and, and picking his brain while we're working on this, there's there's a lot that, that even I didn't know. And I'll just give you one one detail that I thought was really interesting, um, about because there are things that that are challenges that you don't think of unless you're really trying to accomplish something like this. This spacecraft launched in 2006, and it didn't get to Pluto till 2015. So that's a nine year journey, and. One thing that Alan told me that then, then is in the book that I didn't even think of was they had to think of the continuity of knowledge over those nine years. It, the same people may not be working on the project. Of course, a lot of them weren't when they get to Pluto from when it launched. And some of the technology may not even be the same, may not even work anymore. So how do you make sure that they're going to know what to do when you get there? So they did all this uh, interesting um sort of preservation of the knowledge, including, and I thought that was brilliant, they had the team members make videos of themselves talking about how they did what they did, because people have a lot of knowledge in their heads that they don't even necessarily write down because they figure they don't need to. So they made these training videos that then the team could watch when they're approaching Pluto and say, oh, so that's that's how we do it. So there were just a lot of cool things like that that I went, oh, wow, I never knew that while we were writing it. So let me add a couple things. First of all, I was just introducing team members uh, they were here, and then after I finished, one of them walked in. This is Jim Adams, who's an executive at NASA headquarters when we were um, uh, starting the flight of uh, New Horizons. Um, I also want to say, David, I think, is giving a little bit the impression that um, uh, this is only my story in the book. In fact, uh, David interviewed in more than two dozen different characters in the book, from NASA administrators uh, to uh, individual engineers, the mission operations lead, a number of science team members. So you'll see many voices when you look through the book, many quoted passages from these couple dozen people. Uh, and so it really is a tapestry, not just one person's story. Um, yeah, and you'll get to know some of these characters. And part of what's cool is that some of the same people are throughout the whole story from, you know, starting in, in the 1980s till, till now, because Alan started with this sort of gang of, you know, rebel youth in their, their uh, 20s and 30s, these, these scientists, and a lot of the same people uh, finally succeeded, and they're all middle-aged scientists now, but a lot, a lot of the same characters kind of run, their whole life stories kind of run through the book with, with the, uh, the story of exploration. So if you don't mind me telling, to close out the first part of this tonight, 
a little bit of the story of the motivation for doing this. Um, when I was a little boy, uh, it was the 1960s, I mean a little boy, and um, any of you who experienced that time know that it was effectively a decade plucked out of the future, out of the 21st century. People were starting to fly in space, and uh, voyages were happening to the moon, and these un impossible things were happening for the technology of the time. And uh, I was swept off my feet for that, and it's all I ever wanted to do was be involved in space exploration. I don't ever remember being wanting to be a fireman or a policeman or a lawyer or anything. Um, that's all I wanted to do. And by the time that I got through school and got through graduate school at the end of the 80s, um, every planet all the way out to Neptune had been explored. And only Pluto beckoned. And it was amazing to me at the beginning that NASA was a little tone deaf back then. This is a generation ago, not current people. Um, why would we want to go all the way back out there? We just did that with Voyager. We had to stop at Neptune because Pluto's in the other direction. Um, and uh, besides, Pluto's not a giant planet like Jupiter or Neptune. It's this little thing out of, it's a footnote. Um, but those who were working on the science knew that it was much more than that. And ultimately it was the harbinger of this whole third zone of the solar system that's dotted with small planets like Pluto that way outnumber the giant planets and the terrestrial planets. And that scientific motivation married with the exploration epic, ethic um, is really what, what fueled us to want to go and do this. And what happened was we had, and the book tells the story very well, we had a couple of very early home run hit successes. Um, when we first asked NASA to do a study, surprisingly, they just said yes on the spot. And then the study turned out to show that it was pretty easy to do. But then we started to run into defeats, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And so it becomes a story of, of persistence and determination uh, and uh, setbacks and successive successes and then one, two steps forward and one step back. And ultimately, uh, NASA then throws all the cards up in the air and says, there's going to be a competition. Ready, set, go. And I'll leave it at that. You can see how this all turned out. Um, but as David says, the answer is on the front. <laughs> yeah, it it is kind of funny um, telling this this uh, st this story with all this drama, and yet you know everybody knows how it comes out because you know of course we got to Pluto. Look at the cover of the book, and yet I I think we succeeded in in sort of um, slowing it slowing it down enough so there are. Um, moments of tension and you know alan may not have wanted to be a fireman but he definitely had to put out some fires on this uh on this project the, the, the book actually starts with um, a moment of intense crisis so just as uh they were approaching pluto after traveling nine years from earth in basically the last week of the journey uh they completely lost contact with the spacecraft um and did not know if they would regain contact. And at that moment, there's that fear, um, you know, is it gone? Did it blow up? Did something break so badly we'll never hear from it again? And they, they, they do get back in touch, and they fix it just in time so that it can execute the flyby of Pluto. So, but there's, there's some crazy moments. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read you a couple of excerpts um, from the book, and then we'd love to uh, take your questions and, and have some discussion as well. So um, I'm going to start off reading. Um, this is the um, from the chapter where we talk about when it finally gets to the launch pad and it launches, which was um, really an amazing moment of uh, gathering of our community and tension and then uh, catharsis. And, um, you know, it's just very, very exciting and emotional time. 
Um, and uh, there was sort of a, a little uh, surprise package on board the spacecraft too that um, that was not revealed to the public at the time of the launch. Actually, it was revealed later. But I, I'm just going to read you a, a, a short section that describes that. <clears throat> For those working on the mission, there was a keen awareness of both the decade-long flight time ahead as well as the nearly two-decade-long struggle that had already passed just to get to this moment. For all these reasons, there was a sense that this was an important historical time, and almost anyone who was anyone in space exploration came. From astronauts to politicians to planetary scientists from around the globe to space news media and politicians. By a weird cosmic coincidence, the launch happened to be taking place near the anniversary of Clyde Tombaugh's passing. Clyde Tombaugh, who discovered Pluto in 1930, on January 17, 1997. This made the occasion particularly touching. But there was another reason why this was an emotional event, particularly for the Tombaugh family. Unbeknownst to the general public, a bit of Clyde's ashes had been tucked away on board New Horizons. The idea to do so had originally been hatched by Rob Staley, who's somebody you'll learn about in the book, back in the 1990s when JPL was studying the Pluto fast, fast flyby mission, which was one of the many concepts that didn't make it to Pluto. Rob had proposed the idea to Clyde, with whom he had become friends, and Clyde accepted. So in early 2005, when it was beginning to look like the launch of New Horizons would soon be a reality, Alan raised this delicate topic with Clyde's widow, Patsy, and his daughter, Annette, ask, asking them if they knew of Clyde's conversation with Staley, and if they in fact had saved some of his ashes to go to Pluto. Their response was an immediate and enthusiastic yes to both questions. They told Alan that Clyde had wanted this very badly. So Alan asked his spacecraft engineers how one would actually do this, how they could mount a small container on the bird. Because in spaceflight, even something sentimental needed to be engineered. The engineers designed a small container that they would affix to the spacecraft wall and use to replace a small balance weight. One day in mid-2005, Alan received a small packet of ashes from Clyde's family, which he physically carried out to APL in his briefcase and handed to the engineers to place aboard inside the container. On the outside of the container was a tiny plaque inscribed with the words that Alan wrote. Interred herein are remains of American Clyde W. Tombaugh, discoverer of Pluto and the solar system's third zone, Adele and Muron's boy, Patricia's husband, Annette and Alden's father, astronomer, teacher, punster, and friend, Clyde W. Tombaugh, 1906 to 1997. Think about that for a minute. 76 years earlier, photons of light from the sun had reflected off Pluto, traveled for four hours and over all those billions of miles to Earth, and passed through a telescope in Flagstaff, Arizona. Those photons created a tiny dot in a plate of photographic emulsion that had caught young Clyde Tombaugh's eye when he examined that image a few weeks later, revealing the existence of a new, faraway planet. Now, some atoms that had been part of Clyde were going to make the journey out to that faraway world and then continue onward to leave our solar system for interstellar space and the galaxy beyond. Whatever you believe about life, death, consciousness, and fate, this was surely a unique and wondrous memorial, unlike any other in history. Um, yeah, 
So, um, gosh, there's other passages I was thinking of reading, but I, I'm going to actually turn it over to Alan and let him read a passage because uh, we would love to not go on and on ourselves so that we can get into some uh, conversation with you guys. So, Sorry, my yellow stickies are there, but yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So I'm going to read from the very end of the book, uh, uh, actually the coda, uh, called The Final Discovery. The heroes of New Horizons are the engineers, scientists, and others who worked so hard for so long to set and achieve a lofty goal to discover new things about the wonderful universe we live in, to inspire and to make their own contribution to what we call history. In accomplishing the exploration of Pluto, the New Horizons team set records and achieved many firsts. But more importantly, we think they demonstrated to the world that some, some of what are the best qualities of humankind, inquisitiveness, drive, persistence, and the ability to work in teams to achieve something that's larger than life. Of those qualities, more than anything else, New Horizons and the exploration of Pluto took persistence. Consider, it took 13 years, countless battles, and six failed mission attempts just to win the funding to start to build it. After that, it took another four years galloping against all odds to build and launch an outer planet spacecraft in record time and at a breakthrough record low cost. That in turn was followed by a marathon nine and a half year journey across the entirety of our solar system by one lone robot and a small flight team on Earth just to reach Pluto. By exploring Pluto, New Horizons became the capstone mission to the initial reconnaissance of our vast home solar system. In doing so, it turned the last of the known planets at the birth of the space age from a faraway point of light into a real place that humans have now come to know. And with that reveal, NASA, the United States, and our species completed a 50-year-long quest to reconnoiter all the nine originally known planets. The space age is equivalent of Magellan's first circumnavigation of our home planet. The exploration of Pluto was a scientific success beyond what almost anyone expected. It produced countless discoveries and upended paradigms, teaching us that small planets like Pluto can be as complex as big ones and that small planets can remain intensely geologically active even billions of years after forming. The public reaction to the exploration of Pluto helped to reawaken something partially forgotten since Apollo and Voyager, that people across the world love bold space exploration. They are inspired by missions to never-before-explored places, and that such missions even have the power to inspire people and change lives. Shortly after... New Horizons flew past Pluto, I gave a talk in Vermont. And after I spoke, a college student told me that for too long, her generation had been saddled with the meme that their time was not as great as those of recent past generations. She said that their generation hadn't witnessed any wars that saved the world from fascism. They had missed the historic first steps on the moon, the birth of computing, and so many other epical events. And then she said that seeing Pluto explored was, and I quote, was our moon landing and the greatest thing that's happened in our generation, unquote. Well, a shiver ran up my spine when she said that. And I realized that in her eyes, the New Horizons mission 
have been successful in a way that we had never before imagined it could be. A few months later, after I gave a talk to a business convention in Florida, I was approached by a middle-aged woman who came to me literally in tears. She explained that her teenage son had been a failing student until he saw the flyby of Pluto by New Horizons, and that at that exploration, he was inspired to say, quote, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And the mother wiped a tear and told me that since then, in the intervening nine months, her son had transformed himself into a straight-A student. And she said, you all rescued my son. David and I believe that the power of these and the very other human impacts that we have made with New Horizons outshine everything learned about Pluto, everything learned for science. And for us, nothing can substitute for that discovery. Thank you. All right. Um, I think uh, at this point, uh, it'd be great uh, to answer questions if you guys uh, have any. I see a gentleman at the microphone. Thank you so much for your uh, interesting talk. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, so please forgive my ill-informed questions. But <laughs> two questions. Um, what were some of the most interesting things that you learned? Question one. Question two is, what are the politics of getting this mission approved? Who are the stakeholders? Do you, do you uh, lobby a senator? Is it the president? What's that process look like? Okay. So let's talk about the science first. Uh, and the book uh, has a very nice uh, conclusion uh, that goes through the 10 uh, major discoveries that were made. Uh, but I would rank at the very top the two things that were in that coda. Um, the complexity that we found in this small little planet and for scale, if you don't know, uh, Pluto has a surface area about like the continental United States, so much smaller than the Earth or Mars, and yet Pluto turned out to be much more complex than most worlds of the solar system, rivaling Mars and Earth, and some of the geologists on our team like to call Pluto the new Mars. Um, and also, it was expected, because it's small, that um, it would have cooled off and its geologic engine died, like our own moon which all the terrains on the surface are billions of years old. Um, you know, if you have a small cup of coffee next to a vat of coffee, the little cup will cool off faster than the big, the big vat of coffee because of its surface area to mass ratio. And so we expected Pluto, being smaller, uh, would have run that process more quickly, but we got there and we found vast terrains, millions of square kilometers, created yesterday geologically. We found volcanoes uh, the size of Mauna Loa, uh, that also apparently were active yesterday geologically. And flowing glaciers and evidence of past rivers or slurries and frozen lakes on the surface, evidence for an ocean inside the planet, just a scientific wonderland. So read the book. <laughs> now that you bought the book, read the book, and uh, you'll see a lot more of what was discovered. And you asked about the politics. So this was a long process, and the politics today is um, very different than it was. In the 80s and 90s, it was really a free-for-all. It was really who had the best ideas and who you could convince. And individuals with sufficient um, career stature and sufficient, sufficiently good ideas that happened to resonate with the right executives at NASA could simply make missions happen out of thin air. Uh, it's gotten more bureaucratic, but also much fairer now. 
And so when we started, we started in that mold. And the system now is, uh, is, is nothing like it used to be. The book, Chasing New Horizons, actually describes early meetings in which the head of NASA planetary exploration would simply proclaim the missions that he thought were important to do. And he was a really smart guy and very well respected. His name is Wes Huntress. He lives here uh, in D.C. today. He's retired. Um, but today you have to go through the National Academy of Sciences, and the National Academy has to rank what are sometimes a hundred different concepts into the three or four or five that NASA can afford to do. And we had to go through that process in the early 2000s, and we're ranked number one. Um, and, it, and there was a challenge that said, if you don't get to number one, you're not going to get funded. So the politics have changed over the years, and today I think it's a much better process, um, both for the taxpayer and for the, the scientific result. I'll just add one uh, in terms of stakeholders and politics. One interesting dynamic that plays out in the story is the role of um, public enthusiasm for Pluto, because uh, for whatever reason, and this is something that the team and, and we keep discovering over and over again, the public loves Pluto, uh, maybe because it's a small underdog, unknown planet. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, and that that saved the life of the project a couple times because there were times when it was threatened with cancellation or had been canceled and they wanted to to uh, uh, be started again. And there were letter writing campaigns. And there's a group called the Planetary Society. In fact, I think some of their representatives are here now. They're still uh, an important group in, in, in our field. And they sort of it's a huge membership group of interested uh, um, public with what, 30,000 members more. Um, 50,000 members. And there were times um, when Pluto was nearly dead, the, the mission that is not the planet. And <laughs> and um, the Planetary Society organized these letter writing campaigns. And NASA was just like hammered with tens of thousands of letters. This was when people actually wrote letters and put stamps on them and, and mailed them. And um, that actually made a difference. The public support showed that, uh, it, that NASA couldn't ignore um, this uh, the motivation for this mission, and so that that ended up being significant. Uh, this question is this on? Yes, it is. Yeah, um, it's for David. Uh, I know he's a planetary scientist, an expert on Venus and Mars and Earth, and I know that you've been studying Pluto for a long time as an entire scientific field. Um, and that you had nine years to think about what you were going to see using all of your advanced scientific understanding of planets. So my question is, how did you miss it so bad? <laughs> well, um, uh, this relates to Alan's answer to the first question. Uh, you know, what the, the biggest surprise of Pluto, and maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but we have this habit of always extrapolating from what we know and then being surprised when we discover the unknown. We thought that small planets were, would not be that active. In fact, I taught, when I taught um, years and years of undergraduates at the University of Colorado, I taught them what, that small planets were inactive, and I told them why, based on physics. And now I feel like I should track down all those thousands of students and write them a letter and say, you know what, that was wrong. Um, because on a planet like Earth, it's, the, it's the, the, the hugeness of the planet, all the heat stored inside that makes plate tectonics happen and makes Earth geology happen. And we thought small planets would be cooled off and would be dead and not that active. But then we get to a place like Pluto, and you get there, and the first pictures you see, well, it's not covered with craters. There's huge areas that look like they're churning around, and there's things going on there. What did we miss? And what we missed was that 
different materials respond in different ways. So out there, the surface is made of different ices, and there's these vast plains of solid nitrogen, which is weird for us to consider because the air you're breathing now is mostly nitrogen. So you call you cool that down enough, and then you don't just get liquid nitrogen. Um, but you get solid nitrogen as an ice. And it turns out that solid nitrogen has these properties where it's very malleable and it doesn't take very much heat to make it flow like a glacier. And that's what we missed. It was We knew the physics, but we just didn't have the imagination to apply it on that vast a scale. So now we know, in fact, that small planets are every bit as active as large planets. They just do it with different materials. And so, um, that yeah, that's what I missed. So if I can add a couple things to that, because that's a really, really uh, great question. Um, I was talking to a reporter today who asked me essentially the same question, and I, and I responded that if you look at all the textbooks, everything that we and our team expected is in those textbooks um, about how small planets should work. Um, one of the things we discovered is that apparently Pluto didn't bother to read any of the textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, right after we had the flyby, we had a team meeting. And I got everybody together and, uh, and uh, made a little speech. And I remember one of the things that I said is, is that I'm giving us two grades. We get an A for exploration because we nailed it. And we get an F for scientific predictive abilities. <laughs> but, you know, as scientists, you love to be wrong because it means that, oh. you know, now you've really learned something. And uh, the Kniper Belt object, uh, you want to make any predictions? Not on your life, <laughs> but but we should make sure that, that we should make sure that people know what what, what he's asking about. Sure. Um, yeah, so we're going to make uh, another flyby with the New Horizons spacecraft on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day this coming year, a billion miles beyond Pluto, with a bi small building block about the size of DC, just greater DC area, um, uh, called Ultima Thule. Uh, it's it's the things that Pluto was made out of, and. Uh, uh, the only thing I'll predict is that we'll have a flyby on New Year's Eve. Spend your New Year's Eve with NASA. It'll be on NASA TV and everything else, <laughs> and see what we find. Okay, we got a uh, question over here. Um, what was the hardest thing you needed to do to get to Pluto? Oh, so his question was, what was the hardest thing we had to do? To get to Pluto. Yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to give you the two hardest things. The, I would say one was when we started, we had no idea how to do it. So we had to figure it out as we went. There was not even an instruction manual, you know, for, let's say, this Italian car you don't even know how to work on. It, we just had to figure it out as we went. And that was very hard because as it took a long time, the personalities kept changing and the, the rules kept changing. And we had to keep adapting to changing rules and different people in different positions. David tells that story very well in the book. The other thing that was very hard was um, to stick with it. Um, I think all of us thought it was too easy at first. When, uh, at the very beginning, when we had an easy ride for about a year, um, it almost seemed like we were cheating. But then we got one defeat and the next defeat and the next defeat, and eventually it became hard to pick yourself up off the ground again or to... to um, to motivate others to still, you know, not to flake off and leave the team and to still be behind it. And then this was taking place over more than a decade. And there were a dozen or so of these near-death experiences, uh, which David gallops through well enough that you don't get bogged down. Um, and it was really tough to stick with it. But I think 
you know, and I'm talking to you because when you grow up, you're going to, whatever you line of work you go into, it takes determination um, to really succeed. And don't be afraid when you've been set back, if you think you're working on something important, to just stand back up and go right after it again. We did. I've got two questions. One's a quick, silly one. Uh, Dr. Stern, in a fight between you and Steve Squires, who would win? <laughs> probably, probably Steve. <laughs> All right, second one's a serious question. So you've got nine years from launch to uh, encounter. My experience is more Earth observation systems. You put them up, and there's an initialization period, and you're good to go. You're on your mission. You've got all these investigators, all these researchers at universities across the country, around the world. What are they doing during those intervening nine years? Uh, are they looking for other projects to work on? Are they looking for other sources of funding? How does that work? Well, everybody on the project um, was working on multiple space missions at once or multiple projects at once, myself included. And, you know, back in the Voyager days, for a variety of reasons, and some of them were technological and some of them are more uh, the mother of necessity. Uh, it just took a lot more people to run a spacecraft. And they actually had two, right, Voyager 1 and 2. Their team was 450 people in flight. And we were 50 people in flight. So about a tenth as many people. And for our team, we were very busy. People would, you know, my family and colleagues and people would say, God, it's been out there in the middle of nowhere for years. Do you ever work on New Horizons? And meanwhile, inside the project, people are complaining there's too much work. Because this little team of people had to take care of this spacecraft, be good stewards of it, um, keep it on course, be firing the engines for course corrections, do all the navigation, keep the instruments calibrated. Uh, and at the same time, and there's a chapter called Battle Plan Pluto, which is all about planning the flyby. And we had to not just plan the flyby, but we had to plan alternate flybys in case we had to dodge debris. And then we had to put all kinds of crazy AI-type software up on the spacecraft that could handle faults because it's so far from home that there wasn't time for radio signals to go back. We had to test all that software. And then we had to train the team, and we were having mission simulations. And the workload was intense the entire nine years for us. Now, scientifically, um, we weren't producing papers on the Pluto system because we didn't have the data yet. But it takes total commitment to be on one of these teams and to make it turn out right, especially when you only have one shot at it. And once you go by the planet, if you didn't get it all right, if you thought it was over there and it was over there, everything else was right. It was one minus sign in the code somewhere, right? Um, it, it's not a very good day. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So we were very busy the entire flight to Pluto and completely occupied by um, uh, what it took to operate the mission and plan for the flyby. There were a couple of other dramas that were unfolding while the spacecraft was approaching Pluto, too. One was, uh, Alan was describing, there's, there's this upcoming um, encounter uh, this New Year's Eve with another object. The plan all along was that New Horizons, after it flew by Pluto and collected the data there, would visit, hopefully, another object in the Kuiper Belt. The plan was to do that, but at the time of the launch, we had not discovered the right object that it could reach. But the... Um, the calculations showed that there should be enough objects out there. So if they observed carefully with the right telescopes over all those years, they should be able to find statistically an object that New Horizons could reach. Well, New Horizons was on its way to Pluto and the time was going by and they hadn't found an object it could reach. And it started to get hairy. And 
ultimately, they had to use the Hubble Space Telescope, which it wasn't in the original plan. And there was some politics behind that. It's not easy to pull the Hubble off of other projects and say, hey, we've got an emergency in this NASA mission. We're not going to be able to do this if we don't get some Hubble time. And that. So at the very last second, uh, they uh, really they, they found uh, an object that New Horizons could reach, which now it's on its way to. So that drama was unfolding. And then there was also they discovered some new moons of of Pluto. Uh, and it turned out um, that they didn't know this at the time of launch, but but uh, Pluto has five moons, which that was great to discover. But then there was the thought, well, what else might be orbiting around Pluto? And then there became this whole hazard avoidance eff effort, which can we discover? Can we be sure that it's not going to hit something? And um, so they were using telescopes on Earth. And then as the spacecraft approached Pluto, they were taking that most detailed images they could to see if there was anything they didn't know about in orbit. And that made the planning much more complicated because they made these contingency plans where at the last minute they might have had to uh, basically abort the flyby on the plan that ha had been laid out and take a f different path farther away from Pluto to miss some debris, which meant they had to replan the entire effort over again. So th some of this stuff, you know, they were very busy with all this while the spacecraft approached and you Pluto. Have to, you have to imagine the flight control team, the engineering team, the management team, the one accountant, <laughs> right, and you know, and the science team. Everybody is about as many people are in this center section, uh, and uh, we were very busy, no question. Thank you. Uh, hello. Uh, back in 2006, I think Pluto was demoted to dwarf planet. You know? mm -hmm. So I want to know. How did you guys feel about it back then? Because I remember it was quite an emotional time for a lot of people. A lot of the first <laughs> well, the, the, you know, the the question was about the uh, in 2006 the uh, vote at the uh, meeting of the yeah. the astronomers at the International Astronomical Union uh, decided to uh, redefine the word planet in such a way that they uh, said that there were only eight planets in the solar system. Uh, you know, a lot of us never really accepted that. The, the people that made that vote were not planetary scientists. They weren't the people that studied planets. And um, so we still call Pluto a planet, and a lot of people in our field do. And we felt that there were a lot of, and we talk about this in the book a little bit, but we don't dwell on it because it, to us it's not the most interesting thing. But, but it's, there are a lot of uh, sort of flaws in that definition of planet. Most importantly, they, def they tried to define planet not in terms of the intrinsic properties of something that may or may not be a planet, but in terms of its neighborhood, what orbits around it. So it leads to some very absurd um, conclusions. Under that definition, if you moved Earth farther out in the solar system, it would no longer be a planet because it's all about what orbits around it. So we just never adopted that definition, and a lot of people in our field haven't, and we sort of don't worry about it, but we think that in the long run, uh, that definition is not going to stand up. Yeah, and I'll add a couple things about that, too. Um, uh, first of all, let me say that um, a lot of lay people, including e even the press, confuses different expertise in the space field. Um, so they'll confuse planetary scientists with astronomers, even though we have completely different expertise. And I like to say, you know, if you had, God forbid, if you had... Um, uh, uh, a neurological problem, you probably wouldn't go to a podiatrist, you'd look for a neurologist, right? We accept 
that there are different kinds of doctors. And, you know, if you had, if you had a, a problem with real estate law, you probably wouldn't go to a divorce attorney. They're just different expertise, even though all attorneys. So we have different specialties in the space business. Planetary science is completely different than astronomy. Now, I found it ironic since uh, there's so many objects in the universe that the astronomers were afraid of there being too many planets. And the reason they were worried about it is because when our technology was terrible and we couldn't see very far, we only knew of a few planets, so you could memorize all their names. And, and the astronomers just thought, well, that's the way it is. School children should forever be able to memorize all their names. And, and we'll just leave it at that. And I always, I thought, that seems ridiculous. We don't, we don't, when I was a school kid, we were taught that, that we had to memorize the names of the, I think it was the seven great rivers of the earth. Maybe it was eight right? The Nile and the Ganges and the Mississippi and so forth. And, and then you just knew that you looked the rest up in a book, right? And, uh, and as our technology got better, we started to discover there are a lot more planets. And the astronomers' reaction to that was, whoa, stop, wait, wait, put it, let's find a definition that keeps it at eight or nine. And they came up with a really horrible, almost unworkable scientific definition. But the press lapped it right up. Now, I had a good time. I was on uh, Science Friday with Ira Flato debating one of the main proponents one, one evening, and a Friday evening, of course, and, and he fell into this trap. I, mean, I can't believe he said this, but as we're, spout, we're, we're talking along, he spouts this sentence, and he happened to pick a particularly good number for my, you know, if you're going to debate somebody. Um, he said, you know what? He said, we, we just can't have 50 planets. We just can't. No one can remember their names. And Ira said, Alan, what do you say to that? And I said, well, I guess we're going back to eight states. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Another question. Sir. Yeah. Over here. Yes, sir. Yeah. I suppose this may be considered a late question. So what do you say to those who said... Um, in, in lieu of the cost, I assume it's millions of dollars for such a, an enormous project. But what do you say to those who would say, in terms of national infrastructure, bridges and roads, allocated the money for that as opposed to the mission to Pluto because you discover things? But the question is, how can we use what you've discovered on Earth in everyday use, et cetera? Yeah, well, um, no, it's a good question. And I think those of us in uh, space exploration should always consider that's a, a fair question. You know, is it worth spending the money when there's problems? And how much was down it for here the mission? It was uh, round numbers, about a billion dollars. $828 million. Yeah. Um, and uh, so to, to put, let me just say, to put that in perspective, that's about the cost of one m modest city-sized airport or NFL stadium. Right? Right? All right. And, and, okay. it's, and it's about... Um, I think about 1% of what is spent on, on infrastructure over the same period of time by the federal government. So it's a, it's a yeah, and comparison, it's, it's a It's amount. three or four Hollywood superhero movies. So, so, and the thing is, people, you don't think if you didn't do this mission, then we would repair our roads. It just any more than you think if we didn't, if we stopped making Hollywood superhero movies for a few months, then we would repair our roads. I mean, it's, that's sort of not, the way things work you know we have it's it's more complicated than that but um it's actually a tiny tiny slice of i mean nasa itself is a very small percentage of the federal budget and this is a tiny tiny slice of the nasa budget so i mean that sounds like a lot of money but uh well you know what i'm saying with that but that but as far as the second part of your question 
how does that help us here on Earth? Um, I actually think it's, personally, I think it's essential. What this fits into is the larger concept or the larger um, intellectual project of what we call comparative planetology, understanding how planets work. And in this last half century, uh, where we've been, a slightly more, where we've been able to explore the solar system, we've gained all this knowledge of how these other planets work, which has fed back on a huge number of insights into how our own planet works. And right now, that's very essential. We need to understand how this planet works, not just to satisfy our curiosity and because it's cool to know, which it is, but because it's uh, our obligation as stewards of this planet to understand how planets work. And we have gained huge insights into the workings of the geology and the climate and the atmosphere of Earth and how the whole system fits together by um, broadening our perspective through studying the planets. And the exploration of Pluto is, is a part of that wider effort. And, and Thank you. You know, my, my take on this is a little bit different than David's. This is very practical because by learning about other examples of planets, we learn about how to take care of our own planet by seeing the ones that went haywire. But, <laughs> and most of them did. Um, but I look at it a little differently. You know, what NASA has done in terms of making headlines by um, uh, a peaceful pursuit of knowledge in the exploration of the solar system has created a brand for the United States that kids in every country on Earth learn about. And terms like NASA and the Hubble and maybe New Horizons, certainly Voyager and Apollo, um, are printed in every language, in every textbook. Those pictures of the planets with the missions they came from, even in our worst enemies, that soft power projection, I think, is invaluable. It, we're, we're creating an image of a society that can do great things and then puts all the knowledge out there for everyone in the public domain. And on top of it, it's inspirational to careers. You know, in many ways, I'm going to use the wrong term here, so don't tweet it. Space is the gateway drug to an engineering and science career. Yeah. Kids get hooked on space and they end up right. being somewhere else in the tech world, in yeah. building the internet or creating AI or whatever it might be, power systems and electric cars. Very few of them end up like me, actually, in the space business. Most of my friends in my boyhood of Apollo who went into tech careers started off with astronaut helmets and ended up in the internet and the PC revolution, right? And, and they've all got really big houses now in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I did manage a Tesla. I have a, right. I have a zero emission car. Yeah. Anyway, so I really think that the inspirational value to, you know, these subjects are hard, math and physics, chemistry and engineering. Yeah. And space is, is a very uh, seductive um, uh, entryway point to things like that. And, you know, all little kids like space or dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs always lose out. <laughs> so that's what I would say. Thank you. Well, this question is for, oh, am I on? This question is for Dr. Stern. I was wondering, uh, what is your insight as to the key engineering challenges that need to be solved before we start building a Pluto orbiter? Ah, I want you on my team. <laughs> uh, and actually, we know how to do a Pluto orbiter right now. Um, we built orbiters of, of other planets. The radiation is actually easier at Pluto than like at Jupiter. We know how to power them. We know how to communicate. We know how to make them last a long time. The only real challenge is if you want to get there in a hurry, you have to go very fast because it's a long way. And then you want to come to a stop. And unlike the giant planets, you can't use their gravity wells to help you stop. 
so you have to use advanced propulsion. Fortunately, over the last 15 years, NASA has developed and used that advanced propulsion, which is actually something that Star Trek talked about and which we actually have now. It's called ion propulsion yeah. or electric propulsion. And with electric propulsion, um, we can do a Pluto orbiter mission with existing technology that's already been flown in space. So really, I don't think there are any particular technological barriers. There are practical barriers. We need to make it rise to the top in the National Academy um, contest for the 2020s. Um, and we need, we need to um, uh, uh, make sure that we have the, um, the nuclear fuel to fuel this mission, others that require it that are going far away. And after that, it's just turn the crank what we know how to do. So it's actually a relatively easy mission compared to some like Mars sample return uh, or drilling into the ocean of Europa that uh, others are talking about. We'll get it done. Thank you. Um, this question is based on a dim memory, and you might say, that never happened, and I'll sit down quietly if that's the case. <laughs> um, my memory is that when New Horizons launched, there was talk about the fact that the, the nuclear fuel on it, which I believe was plutonium, there was a concern that if the rocket blew up, it would fall in the ocean and contaminate it, be a terrible catastrophe, and some people didn't want it to launch. Is that memory correct, and was there ever a real risk to the mission from that? Um, that never happens. Sit down. No. <laughs> Yeah. No, that's not the real answer. No, so, so let, let, that, that's actually, a, a, you're correct, okay. um, and there's kind of a long answer, which you can read the book. Oh, I'll, okay. I'll try which to I do a short answer, I got it. which right. is, which is uh, ever since the 1960s, NASA has been flying nuclear-powered missions. Other government agencies have, too. Um, in the case of NASA, it, they're only used when we go to places that are too far away to use solar power. Uh, like when you go to Pluto, the sunlight is a thousand times dimmer, and you you can't do it with solar rays. And uh, the the government, the federal government, has a very stringent process to qualify the rocket and the uh, protective device around the nuclear battery um, to make sure a the rocket's safe, and in the worst case that something unexpected happens, that the nuclear battery um, won't be breached. Um, and in fact, in the 1960s, one of these nuclear batteries was on a rocket that blew up. It fell in the ocean. Um, they went and got it out of the ocean. It was completely intact, and they flew it on another mission. Wow. <laughs> but still, after Three Mile Island, which was a, a 1970s uh, ground-based, not space, nuclear accident, a lot of people were very worried about NASA and flying nuclear materials. So we, like other NASA missions, had to go through this very involved EPA process, Environmental Protection Agency process, under the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, that involved getting permission to launch from 42 state and federal agencies, um, to which there is no boss. So if you've heard of cat, you know, herding cats, okay. this was the process of cats herding themselves. <laughs> uh, and we had to go through that wicket, you know, all the way down to literally on my birthday in November of 2005, I was sitting in Jeb Bush's office getting permission from the governor of Florida to do this launch that it would be safe. And they're very safe, but there are people who are legitimately concerned, and NASA respects that and has a very stringent process to get qualified to launch. Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, no. <laughs> this may be a simple no answer from you. Um, but it sort of segues from what was discussed earlier. Did you learn anything about the uh, planetary geology of Pluto that taught you something about the geology here on Earth? No. 
<laughs> no, but we did learn, uh, and, D and David's qualified, of course, to answer this question too, so he'll probably have a different take on it. Um, but we, we did learn that these small planets, way out here on the frozen edge of the solar system, uh, where the sunlight is so faint and the temperatures are hundreds of degrees below zero, um, have amazingly familiar geologic features. There are mountain ranges the size of the Rockies on Pluto, and they have snow caps, just like where I live in Colorado, except the snow caps aren't made of water ice. Um, the stuff looks the same. It's very bright and reflective, um, but it's actually frozen methane, natural gas. We see canyons and glaciers. We see evidence of of frozen lakes, and we see evidence of avalanches. Uh, and we see craters. We don't see very many of those in the Earth. But there are lots of analogs to the geology of Earth that we see on these bizarre worlds that are so far away um, that remind us of home. And in, in some ways, much more than the giant planets, which are big gas bag planets. Yeah, so I'm going to say that's what we learned about the geology of Earth, that it's not as unique as we thought it was, that elsewhere in the universe, places we weren't expecting it, a lot of the same similar kinds of structures are forming with different materials. So you see these mountains that, as Alan said, are almost dead ringers for the Rocky Mountains. They're the same height, you know. They're, Except they're made of water ice. Right, rock. but they're not rock. They're made out of water ice. And then you see these glaciers flowing on the surface that, that you know, glaciologists can recognize and say, oh yeah, that, that morphology, I can, you know, do my analysis with that. They look like glaciers, but they're not made out of water ice. They're made out of flowing nitrogen, solid nitrogen. So nature does the same thing in different locations uh, using whatever materials are at hand. So so I guess we learned about the, the geology of Earth that is part of this continuum uh, of planets in a way that we didn't suspect. I'll say, I want to say one more thing about things that we've learned that really have changed paradigms. At the beginning of the space age, when we were stuck looking through telescopes, the planetary scientists of the day looked out across the solar system and all the worlds and found no other oceans and concluded, turns out incorrectly, that the Earth was the weirdo that had the only ocean. And yet, as we flew spacecraft, we found oceans are common. Even Pluto almost certainly has an ocean. There's very strong evidence. But like all the other worlds, except Earth, those oceans are on the inside. They're underground. So it turns out oceans are very common. And it might even be that life is very common. The Earth is still the weirdo. It wears its oceans on the outside. <laughs> but the early practitioners of planetary science, without the benefit of spaceflight, drew precisely the wrong conclusion when they saw no oceans. Instead of what we know now, they concluded there were no other oceans. They're actually everywhere. And that's the next exciting era of exploration, is to actually get down into those oceans and sample them and see which of them may have evolved other forms of life in our own solar system. And I think that's a worthy enterprise for the 21st century. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Oh, Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.